to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at a case of In the Matter of NY A Child, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 49. And the three-year-old child in this case has sadly become the focal point in an international dispute about her future. NY's parents are both Israeli nationals and got married in 2013. The family of three moved to London in late 2018, but not long after this the marriage broke down and the father took the decision to move back to Israel. Problems began when the mother refused to move back and instead remained in London with their daughter. In the original case, the father made an application under the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction 1980, on the basis that the child should not have been retained in England. He was successful in the High Court where a summary order was granted for the child's immediate return to Israel, but there was an appeal to the Court of Appeal. Here it was held that there were in fact no grounds for deciding that the child remaining in London was wrongful under the Convention, and so the original order was set aside. You might be tempted to think that this is the end of the case, but in truth, this is where things really start getting interesting. You see, one of the comments that the High Court judge made was that even if the child had been habitually resident in this country, then he still would have reached the same conclusion, but just by using the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court rather than the Convention. What does this mean? Well, the inherent jurisdiction is kind of a fancy way of saying that the courts can make a decision on any matter that comes before it, so long as it isn't specifically prohibited by the law or the fact that some other tribunal has exclusive jurisdiction. Thus, even after the appeal from the mother had been allowed on the basis of international law, this inherent jurisdiction decision still had to be considered by the Court of Appeal. In fact, when they reviewed the findings of the High Court, they even went so far as to side with the father and make a summary order for the return of the child to Israel. As you might expect, the mother appealed to the Supreme Court on the basis that such an order cannot and should not be made under the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court, and so that is where we pick the case up. The justices of the Supreme Court split their judgement around two key questions. Firstly, could the inherent jurisdiction actually be used by the Court of Appeal? And secondly, even if the inherent jurisdiction could be used, then was it correctly applied in this case? In order to answer that first question about the use of the inherent jurisdiction, we need to look at the type of order that the Court is making. So far in this episode, we have only really talked about summary orders, which are, put simply, orders of the Court that are issued without a full investigation. However, the precise type of summary order in this context is called a specific issue order, and these are designed to deal with particular issues that arise in relation to the parental responsibility of a child. Specific issue orders were a creation of the Children Act 1989, but even before this time it was well established that a summary order could still be used to secure the return of a child under the Convention by virtue of the inherent jurisdiction of the relevant court. In fact, even when the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction was incorporated into UK law via Schedule 1 of the Child Abduction and Custody Act 1985, summary orders were still used because the legislation did not always match up precisely with the inherent jurisdiction. 
That was all fine, but the real question that the justices needed to get to was whether summary orders under the inherent jurisdiction still remained available after 1989 when specific issue orders came on the scene. In this case, the mother argued that they were not available on the basis that paragraph 1.1 of Practice Direction 12D that supplements the Family Procedure Rules 2010 states that the inherent jurisdiction can only be used where it is not already possible to resolve the issues under the Children Act 1989. In other words, because it is possible to obtain a specific issue order under the Convention, you can't then use the inherent jurisdiction as a sort of backup plan. Unfortunately for the mother, this doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny. The main problem is that the actual law itself will always take precedence over any sort of practice direction. And so the fact that there isn't any sort of statutory basis for paragraph 1.1 automatically places the argument in a weak position. When you then go on to couple this with a substantial amount of case law which indicates that an order can be made under the inherent jurisdiction, even when a specific issue order has been available, it is the death knell for this submission by the mother. Thus, while the Supreme Court found that there is a general preference for an order to be made under the 1989 Act, the use of the inherent jurisdiction as a basis for an order is also available. That gives us the answer to the first question, but you will remember that we also have to ask whether the exercise of the inherent jurisdiction in this particular case was correct or not. The central feature of this question is the welfare of the child. After all, this is the basis for exercise of the inherent jurisdiction in the UK legal system, but it does not play the same role in the Convention. For a start, that means the original decision made by the High Court judge under the Convention cannot simply be adjusted by a more senior court, so that it now stands on the inherent jurisdiction instead. This was the first mistake made by the Court of Appeal, as they presumed that the relevant inquiries into the welfare of the child had already been made at the High Court level. That mistake was then compounded by a number of other factors, including the lack of notice given to the mother regarding the use of the inherent jurisdiction, and a failure to answer a series of eight other important questions before making an order, including whether the evidence before it was up to date. These failings meant that the exercise of the inherent jurisdiction by the Court of Appeal was flawed, and so the mother was ultimately successful in her appeal. As we move on to our own analysis of this case, the first thing that springs to mind is just how close this was. Both sides had some success during the proceedings, and the final decision of the Supreme Court that we have just looked at was based on something as close to a technicality, as much as a substantive point. In many ways, that is also quite reflective of the case as a whole. It is just as easy to see why the child should return to Israel, where both of the parents are from, as it is to see why the child should remain in the UK, where she has spent her life so far. Throughout this episode, we have focused on the two possible avenues that are open to the courts in this situation. The first of these is the Convention on Child Abduction, but the use of that in this context does not really match what the average person might expect child abduction to look like. Of course, not every child abduction case is going to look like the Liam Neeson film Taken, and so we do have to be aware that the term abduction under the convention can also refer to unlawful retention of a child in a country as well. Nevertheless, the nuance at play in this case means it is not too surprising that the Court of Appeal overturned the original order from the High Court. 
This brings us on to the second avenue, which is this so-called inherent jurisdiction concept that appears to be extraordinarily wide in its scope. As a reminder, this is the idea that a senior court is able to hear any matter that comes before it, so long as this isn't specifically excluded in some other way. On the surface, this can look like it gives far too much power to judges in cases, but the inherent jurisdiction can also play a vital role in sensitive cases. To give one example from a case last year called A Local Authority and BF, the inherent jurisdiction was used to keep a 97-year-old man with severe disabilities in care. Similarly, in this case, we can see how the inherent jurisdiction can be used to help make important decisions about a child's future. However, this importance does not mean we should be complacent when it comes to the use of the inherent jurisdiction, as we protect against excessive use by judges. Wherever it is possible to do so, we should ensure that legislation sets out the limits of what judges can and cannot do, and not let the value of the inherent jurisdiction in individual cases affect our overall vigilance with respect to the judiciary. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. One thing I'd like to do at the end of this episode is just to give a special shout out to some of the people who left very kind five-star reviews of the podcast on iTunes. Really means a lot, and I've not really done this for a little while, so there are a few names to read out here. Special thanks go out to Fraser, to SuperSara76, who has an exam coming up this week, so best of luck to you in that exam, SuperSara, um, to Ashleen as well, and last but not least, to the main man himself, Mr. Paddy O'Connell, who is the only gooner I recommend you follow on Twitter. He is at Selected Laws and definitely worth a follow. Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week, so until next time, bye! bye.